Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn them to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, that's where we'll be today. And as you turn there, let me just say how grateful I am to be here with you. Um, This has been a long time coming. It feels surreal in a way to uh, get to address you from from this pulpit. Uh, We've been praying uh, for you and listening to your sermons for over a year now. And it's so gratifying to be here and to begin this work of of Gulf Theological Seminary here in Abu Dhabi, training up men and women uh, in the gospel who can be an impact in their churches here and, Lord willing, across the globe as well. So uh, it's a very exciting work, and we are glad to be here. 2 Peter chapter 1 is where we'll be. In 2011, a man named Warren Jeffs was sentenced to life in prison for crimes that, frankly, I don't feel comfortable talking about behind this pulpit. He was the president of a religious cult in the United States called the FLDS, Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. And this is a particular sect off of the false religion known as Mormonism, which is its own sect off of Christianity. So the FLDS, they split from the official Mormon church when... Polygamy, that is the practice of accumulating multiple wives, was outlawed in the United States and it was subsequently ruled as immoral by the official Mormon doctrine. The FLDS considered this compromise on the official Mormon church's part. They uh, thought that purity to their leader, um, Joseph Smith, necessarily included the accumulation of of wives. That's why they split from the Mormon church. And so this guy, Warren Jeffs, was the second president of this group, and he claimed and continues to claim today from prison to be the only living prophet for God on this planet. Uh, He himself had over 70 wives. Many of them were young. And so he used his spiritual position of authority, like many have, to abuse others. He taught that he had a direct line of communication. And so to hear from him was to hear from God himself. And unsurprisingly, as is commonly the case in this sort of situation, his so-called revelations included God's apparent approval of countless wicked indulgences to satisfy his own craven lusts. Now many of us hear this and we wonder how anyone could follow such a patently wicked man. We think, why would anybody give this guy a time of day? How could he have any followers, let alone the hundreds of followers that followed him and continue to even today? But friends, I think people listen to him for similar reasons that they are led astray by false teachings of other sorts today. We crave the novelty of experiencing something new and fresh from God. I think that's how it's possible for someone like Warren Jeffs to accumulate leaders. Shysters and uh, frauds and snake oil salesmen and false teachers win audiences because too many of us are addicted to the promise of mystical spiritual experiences and new revelations from God. It's exciting to hear somebody say, I am speaking for God. New revelation that you've never heard before. 
And this desire is exactly what false teachers of the prosperity gospel capitalize on when they promise you health and wealth and prosperity and new heights of spiritual ecstasy if only you have enough faith or give them enough financially. So what's the best defense for this kind of deception? Well, it's not, I don't think, it's not cynicism that concludes that the desire for communication from God, uh, the desire for communion with God, is wrong all the way down. I don't think that's the solution, because the desire to hear from God, the desire for communion with God, is not the problem. The problem is trying to meet that desire in the wrong place, outside of where God has ordained for that desire to be met. So the best defense for this kind of deception is not cynicism that says we shouldn't desire to hear from God. The best defense, I think, for this kind of deception is a recognition of the glory that we already have access to through the Scriptures. That's what this passage is about today. So 2 Peter chapter 1, if you're still there, beginning in verse 16. I'm going to read this passage for us and then pray for us one more time. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These are the words of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us without a revelation of yourself. Thank you for not leaving us to fend for ourselves, but for giving us access to your glory here in this book. Glorify yourself now as we worship you with our attention to your word. We ask that you take the seed of your word, now sown in my weakness, and raise it in your power. We want to see Jesus. So let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now we're obviously dropping into the middle of a letter here, so let me give you a little bit of context to orient us to what we just read. Peter, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, writes this letter towards the end of his life. And so this is a sort of final word that he's giving to the church. He feels compelled to leave his readers with reminders. And in this way, he's sort of paralleling Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. You see, in Deuteronomy, Moses is about to die And the people of Israel are about to enter into the promised land, and he leaves the people of Israel with a reminder of what the Lord has accomplished among them in order to encourage their faithfulness as they enter into the promised land. And so similarly, Peter 
wants his readers to be faithful to the end. He wants for them to endure and to enter into the heavenly promised land, so to speak. And so this is why remembering is such a crucial theme throughout this letter. We didn't read it in our passage, but uh, Peter says in verse 9 that the people who do not, uh, who lack the, the qualities of faithful obedience to Christ, lack qualities of faithful obedience to Christ because that person is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So lack of obedience for Peter is a problem of rem- remembering. Lack of remembering. Or why he says in verse 12, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Why he says in verse 13 that as long as he is in this body, he will, quote, stir you up by way of reminder so that after his departure, they may, verse 15, be able at any time to recall these things. Remember, recall, don't forget. That's Peter's point here. It's as if he's saying, listen, friends, I'm not going to be with you much longer. So before I leave, let me remind you to keep your eye on the prize. Keep your hope secure in Christ and keep steadfast in your pursuit of godliness until you cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. And so our passage this morning includes one particular angle of uh, Peter's motivation for their faithfulness, and that is the majesty of Christ. He showcases the breathtakingly beautiful and awesome and glorious nature of Christ. Look at verse 16 one more time. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter reminds his readers that the gospel that he and the other apostles shared with the world, the gospel that he shared with them and the hope of heaven that he had called them to, was not the invention of some overactive imagination. They hadn't received some myth that he is continuing to pass on to them. No, they had received this message from someone who actually walked and talked with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, Peter himself, the one who, quote, made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that guy saw the majesty of Christ with his own two eyes. He's saying, listen, the kind of glory that you are looking forward to in the second coming is not a pipe dream. I saw it myself, and it was glorious. What's he describing here? Well, he's describing an event described in Matthew 17. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read this passage to you. This is the event that he's describing. Matthew chapter 17, this is in the life and ministry of Jesus, and it says this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here, if you wish. I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. 
He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Peter reminds his readers of this event. This event is what we call the the transfiguration of Jesus. And while we don't necessarily make a big deal out of it uh, too, too often in evangelical circles, it's unfortunate because this event is actually a crucial event in the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, it's a crucial event in the storyline of the whole Bible. So in this event, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up what Peter calls the holy mountain. And by taking Peter and James and John up a mountain, these three characters are following the paths of many Old Testament figures. This theme of of going up a mountain to experience God's glory is something that is developed all throughout the Scriptures. And so they follow the path that many Old Testament figures set before them, most relevantly, here for our passage, two Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah. Those are the two figures that appear with, with Jesus. Both of these guys had mountaintop experiences with the glory of God. For Moses, the event is described in Exodus 33. So he's up on Mount Horeb. He's receiving information from Yahweh to deliver to the people of Israel. And while he's up there, he does something audacious. He asks to see God's glory. He asks God for God to reveal to him his glory. And something that is just as amazing, God graciously grants him this request, partially. He won't let Moses look directly at his glory, unmediated and unprotected, because that would consume Moses. This is why all throughout the Bible, whenever a figure gets even a glimpse of God's glory, they fall on their faces in terror. Right? You remember Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah uh, has this vision of the heavenly throne room, and he sees Yahweh in all his glory, and the seraphim, uh, the, these holy angels who are made to be holy, cannot even stand being in the presence of a holy God without covering their eyes and their feet with their wings, and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what does Isaiah do? He falls on his face, and he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what happens when you see even a glimpse of God's glory. So God spares Moses. He says, I'm not going to show you my glory unmediated. Instead, I'm going to hide you in a cleft of a rock and place my hand over your face and then pass by so that you can see my back. And so God's glory passes by Moses. And even this mediated experience with God's glory is more intense than just about any other figure in the Bible. In fact, it's so intense that Moses' face glows afterwards. He is affected with this experience. He's been transformed by what he sees, and his face radiates with the glory of God. It's so striking, in fact, that the people of Israel beg Moses to cover his face with a veil. They say, please cover that up. We do not want to see your face emanating with the glory of God. It's like when they first came to the foot of Mount Sinai, 
And God showed up in power. And they were so terrified that they begged Moses, please talk to God for us so that we don't have to talk to him directly. And now similarly, they have the same experience. They are terrified by Moses because Moses now looks a little like Yahweh. So that's Moses' mountaintop experience. Exodus chapter 33. He asks to see God's glory and God shows him his glory. Elijah's mountaintop experience is pretty similar. We read about that in 1 Kings chapter 19. And so this is after Elijah has his famous showdown with the 70 priests of Baal, which is a very exciting story. I would encourage you to go read it if you're unfamiliar with it. So this is after his showdown with the priests of Baal and uh, the, the wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel are not pleased with the way that things went. And so they put a hit out on Elijah. So Elijah's on the run. He's fleeing for his life. And he goes through the wilderness and eventually he makes his way to Mount Horeb. This is the same mountain that Moses was on when he experienced the glory of God. So he makes his way to Mount Horeb and it says that he, he hides himself in a cave. And I think the text is inviting us to think that Elijah is trying to seek out this similar kind of experience that Moses had. He wants to go to the same mountain, to go to the same place. He's on the run. He thinks that he's the only one left faithful in Israel, and he just needs some kind of consolation. So he wants to experience the glory of God. And like with Moses, God graciously grants this request. Except where Moses saw the glory of God, Elijah heard the glory of God. He heard the glory of God in a small whisper, and when he hears God speak to him, he subsequently covers his face with a veil in response. So think about the parallel of these two figures up here, Moses and Elijah. Both of these men went to the very same mountain to probably the very same spot in order to experience God. Both of them were graciously met with an experience of divine glory. Moses saw God's glory. Elijah heard God's glory. And both of them cover their face in response. And now, in Matthew 17, both of them appear on the holy mountain with Jesus while Peter and James and John look on. Do you see the implications here? Their being there up on that mountain with Christ being transfigured is not merely pointing to the fact that Jesus is going to fulfill all the law and the prophets. I think that's at least part of it, right? The law being represented by Moses, the prophets being represented by Elijah, that's part of it. But it's more than that. Their being there on that mountain, Moses and Elijah, is testifying to the divine nature of Christ. That he is not some mere man. He is the God-man. Both of these men requested to see the glory of God on the mountain, and here they are as Christ is transfigured talking with him. It's as if their request is being granted all over again. And Peter and James and John see all of this. And by seeing the glory of Jesus there on that mountain, Peter and James and John are seeing and hearing the glory of the Holy Trinity. Maybe you didn't notice the Trinity when I read that passage to you. Did you notice descending from heaven, there is a bright cloud? That's kind of a paradoxical phrase, right? If you're standing in a cloud, you're not typically going to describe it as bright. This is a bright cloud. And I think the cloud is a, is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It is from this cloud that the Father speaks and testifies to the glory and trustworthiness and biblical fulfillment of Christ. 
And so the Spirit, who, who is breathed out by, it proceeds uh, from the Father and the Son, with His bright presence, gives voice to the Father's speech, and the testimony of this Trinitarian mountaintop experience is clear. This is the testimony. Divine glory is revealed preeminently and none other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is God from God, as the Nicene Creed says. Light from light, very God from very God. To behold the glory of Jesus is to behold the glory of God. This is the point. The same glory that Moses saw and the same glory that Elijah heard is the glory that James and John and Peter saw and heard on the mountain. That's why they fell on their faces. And so Peter reminds his readers of this crucial event, and he does so within the context of these being his last words to them, urging them to stay faithful as they look forward to their hope of heaven. Verse 19 says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He's talking about heaven. Now, isn't it striking that Peter's, as Peter's days on earth come to a close, and as he, he's thinking more about heaven, he finds his mind returning back to this moment when he was on the mountain with Christ and he saw Christ transfigured. Is this not because he saw on that mountain a preview of coming attractions? He got a foretaste of heaven there on the mountain a foretaste of what theologians call the beatific vision, the happy vision, the blessed vision, that is, the vision of God. But remember, Peter is writing this letter in order to stir up remembrance and hope in his readers who will live on past his death in this life. He wants for them to follow his lead, keeping their eyes on the glory of Christ as they look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. He's not merely sharing this story because he's, he is uh, uh, feeling fond memories sort of rising up in his heart spontaneously. He's bringing this story up for a purpose. He's wanting to encourage them to stay faithful. Now, what good does it do them if all he has to offer them is his memory? They weren't there on that mountain. They didn't experience this sight of the glory of Christ there up on that mountain. What, what, does that good, what, what good does that do them? That, that memory may, may be a lot to give him assurance, but they weren't there with him. Peter goes on in the same passage to assure them that they are not, in fact, left empty-handed. In fact, this moment of the transfiguration that he's talking about on this holy mountain actually serves to more fully confirm something else, something that they do have access to. So look at verse 19 with me. He says, and we have... Now, I think, I think Peter is making a shift here. When, he's, when he was saying we before, he's talking about me and the other apostles. We saw the glory of Christ up on that holy mount of transfiguration. Now I think he's including his readers. We have, all of us, we have what? The prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Notice how Peter's argument, this is amazing, Peter's argument does not reach its climax with the transfiguration of Jesus, this amazing, glorious event. That's not where his argument reaches its climax. His argument reaches its climax 
Not at the transfiguration, but rather the prophetic word that Jesus' transfiguration confirms. It's as if he's saying, listen, friends, you want to see the light of Christ's glory that I saw on the holy mountain? You can. You can actually carry it with you. Like it's a lamp to shine your way in this dark world as you continue on in your pilgrimage in the scriptures. Now, this is amazing, friends. Think back with me about that episode that I described of Moses up on the mountain when he went up on Mount Horeb and he asks to see God's glory and God shows him his glory. You remember that that episode that I described? Well, that scene from biblical history is repeated all throughout the Bible. It's, It's alluded to, it's quoted, it's made use of, it becomes a theme that's traced all throughout the scriptures. And one particular passage that's very important and bears immediate relevance on our text today is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church, and as he's writing to them, he describes the superiority of Christ's ministry over the Old Covenant, and he does this by way of contrast. He's contrasting the glory of the Old Covenant with the glory of the New Covenant. Again, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. This is what Peter or this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, "Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened." For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. Paul says that our place as Christians in the new covenant is better than ancient Israel's place and the old covenant in part because we don't require for the glory of God to be veiled like they did. We're very bold. We don't say, no, hide the glory of God. No, we actually want to see the glory like Moses did. In fact, we get to behold the glory of the Lord directly in this new covenant, just like Moses did. And just like Moses, beholding the glory of the Lord transforms us into the image of what we behold. We become like what we worship. And when we see the glory of God, we're made like the glory of God. Now, Paul will go on in that same section of 2 Corinthians, a few verses later, to name more specifically this image. He says, When we look at the image of the glory of God, we're transformed into that image. Okay, well, what is that image? He goes on to describe it more specifically when he says that, uh, when he describes the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image? So Christ is the image. This is why he says in verse 6 that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the question is, where do we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? If we were Peter, we might be inclined to say, I saw the glory of God on the face of Jesus Christ when I was up on the mount and I saw Christ transfigured. That's where I saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we're not Peter. We can't give that answer. 
So where do we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Do we have to uh, get on a plane, fly to Israel, try to find Mount Horeb, try to identify the cleft of the rock that Moses was hiding in, and then beg for God to show us his glory there? Do we have to do that? Do we have to find some mountaintop where we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? No, brothers and sisters, the answer from 2 Corinthians 3 and then our passage today, 2 Peter chapter 1, the answer is clear. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through the scriptures. You see, what Paul and Peter are saying, and if I've lost you with anything else that I've said before, this is where you come back to me, okay? This is, this is the rub. What Paul and Peter are both saying in their respective passages is that we have access to see the same glory that Moses saw, which is the same glory that Elijah heard on Mount Horeb, which is the same glory that Isaiah saw in his heavenly vision, which is the same glory that Peter and James and John saw and heard on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is the same glory that we will see in the resurrection, not with the eyes of faith, but with the eyes of a glorified body. Namely, we have access to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have access to that glory through the scriptures. The scriptures are our access point to see the glory of Christ who is the image of the invisible God. They are our window through which we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we never, never take for granted this precious divine gift that is the scriptures. In fact, from this perspective, it almost feels like Peter is making a massive understatement, doesn't it? When he calls the scriptures a lamp. <laughs> it may be a lamp, but this is, this is not like any lamp you've ever experienced. It's a lamp that has the light of a thousand suns. It shows us the glory of Christ. But listen, it's not necessarily easy. Reading the scriptures requires prayer, a dependency on the Holy Spirit, an actual work and study and contemplation and carefully piecing together sentence structures. This is the mystery. God has ordained for countless and immeasurable treasures to be found in this book. That is what he has ordained. But he has not ordained for those countless treasures to be had at in a passive way, right? As if we just flip the scriptures open and bam, glory. That's not how he has ordained things. He has given us immeasurable treasures in this book. And the only way for us to get at those treasures by his plan is for us to study them, to carefully study them. This is why I'm so excited that we have the opportunity to train up brothers and sisters in Christ with the word of God through the Gulf Theological Seminary, through GTS. And why I'm particularly excited about Foundations Year this year-long trek through the, the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament and hermeneutics and basic systematic theology. And friends, if I, if I could just kind of give this urge, this push, if you're able to attend Foundations Year, which begins the first week of September here, and you haven't yet signed up, can I be so bold as to ask you to? Let me urge you to sign up and be a part of this class. We have the privilege as a class to give ourselves unreservedly to the study of this whole book in a concentrated way for a year. What could be a better use of a year? 
I mean, if Peter and Paul are right that these words showcase the glory of Christ, if we would seek him there, think about the glory such a year-long program promises. But friends, even if you aren't able to attend Foundations Year, we should still give our heartfelt attention and devotion to the Scriptures, privately, individually, as we're reading the Scriptures, and corporately, together, as we're hearing the Word of God proclaimed to us. This is God's Word to us as a church. So we should give our attention unreservedly to the Scriptures. Let me give you four reasons why. Four reasons for us to devote our heartfelt attention to the Scriptures and worshipful study in closing. First, we should do this because the Scriptures are God's Word to us. Did you notice verse 21? It says, look, look with me at verse 21. Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is not merely a man-written book. Now, it's at least that, right? This isn't, this isn't a, a dictation that just fell from the sky. There really was a historical figure named Peter who really did write this letter, and we really are reading his letters, okay? So this, this, this really is a, a man-written book, but it's not merely a man-written book. Because what Peter says is that when he wrote these words, when he, spoke from, when he spoke these words, he was speaking from God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this means that the Bible is the only book in the world that is truly dual-authored. Every word in this book was authored by some human and God, such that the result is truly and entirely a revelation from God himself, a self Revelation. That cannot be said of any other book on the planet. We're describing here the doctrine of inspiration. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. And no, I'm not, I'm not talking about how my wife's beauty inspires me to write poetry, which it does. I'm not talking about how watching a cooking show inspires you to try your hand at a new dish. That's not what we're describing here. We're describing something stronger and deeper. So strong and so deep, in fact, that we can say God sovereignly and providentially superintended these words such that at the end of the day, Peter could look at this letter and say, yes, those are my words. Even while simultaneously, the God of all creation can look at those same words and say, yes, those are my words. Those are my words. Friends, can I just say very practically, this means that we don't have to go to some modern-day prophet or self-proclaimed apostle in order to hear from God. We don't. We must not. We don't have to have some mystical experience or vision or dream or travel to Mount Horeb in order to hear from God. No, when we read the Scriptures, we are reading the very words of God. When we hear the Scriptures, when they are read and proclaimed week after week as we gather as a, as a body, as a singular body, when that happens, we are hearing the very voice of God. God is addressing His people. That's wonderful. We don't have to go to, to somebody else in order to hear from God. We hear Him every week. So, that's the first reason for us to devote our heartfelt attention to the Scriptures and worshipful study. Because the Scriptures are God's Word to us, and we seek Him by seeking Him there. Secondly, 
The Scriptures reveal the glory of Christ. Don't miss the fact that both 2 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the other passage I read to you, don't miss the fact that both of these passages are New Testament passages describing what? They're describing beholding the glory of Christ in the Old Testament. Peter says the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's talking about the Old Testament. And uh, Paul says, whenever Moses is read, he's talking about the Old Testament. What does that mean? It means that it's not just the New Testament that reveals the glory of Christ. It is the Old Testament as well. As well. Christ himself is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible. He, his glory emanates from every single page of this book. Now, there's a very real sense, therefore, in which failing to see Christ's fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament and thereby failing to see his glory there is to fail to read the Old Testament accurately regardless of your historical or linguistic knowledge. Hebrew scholars who give their lives to studying the Hebrew Bible and their apparent devotion to Yahweh who do not see the glory of Christ there have a veil over their hearts. They don't understand what they study because the Scriptures have not been rightly read or obeyed until their testimony of Christ's glory produces the praise of Christ. Every one of the 66 books of this Bible reveal to us the glory of God. That's the second reason we should devote our attention there. Third, and relatedly, by showing us the glory of Jesus, the Scriptures transform us and prepare us for heaven. So when they, when they show us the glory of Christ, that glory is transformative. Remember, Peter's concern here for his audience is their endurance to the end. He wants for them to be transformed because heaven is coming. He'll go on to say in chapter 3 that on the last day when human history reaches its climax at the return of Christ, the heavens and the earth as they currently are will be exposed. And everything that is not fit for the new heavens and the new earth, everything that is not fit for God's dwelling will be burned up, gone. And it will be transformed into a new heavens and a new earth, one that is fit for a holy God to dwell in with a holy people. So Peter is urging us, he's urging his readers to be the kind of people who look forward to that day with excitement, not with dread. The kind of people who are fitted for heaven. We want a land of all holiness without any sin. We want for everything that is unholy to be burned up. We want to be the kind of people who are excited for that kind of day because we belong to another country. Peter wants us to live like the citizens of heaven that we are. Therefore, we should continually fit ourselves for that coming kingdom. We should get ready for what it's like to live in a land of all holiness without any sin whatsoever. And the way that this happens is not by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. The way that this happens is by beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through the Scriptures. That's how we're transformed. And this is getting at an irreducible principle we find all throughout the Scriptures describing how God made people. This is the principle. We become more like what we worship. We become more like what we behold. This is not optional. This isn't something that we can make happen. This is just the way that we're made, whether you're a Christian or not. The question is, 
what is our object of worship? If we worship social media, if we're giving our constant attention to social media, we will find that we are transformed more into our social media avatar. We'll find that we start thinking of social media the way that social media conditions us to think. If we worship entertainment and pop culture, we will find that our thinking is transformed by what we behold. We will become more like the entertainment and pop culture that we are consuming. We'll start to think about reality the way that it portrays reality. Or the the example from Psalm 115, if we worship idols, which are dumb and deaf and blind, we will become spiritually dumb and deaf and blind. But if we worship Christ, we will become more like him. Beholding the glory of Christ through the scriptures, we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. Like how Moses was transformed when he saw Yahweh's glory on the mountain, when he beheld him, we too are transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another as we continue to behold him in the scriptures. That's the third reason we should give ourselves to the study of God's word. Fourth and finally, we should give our unreserved attention and heartfelt worshipful study to the scriptures because false teachers twist the scriptures and we should therefore know them well. Now, it may be easy for most Christians to spot the deception of a figure like Warren Jeffs, that guy from the FLDS I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. It may be easy for us to spot his kind of deception, but there are other false teachers who are much more difficult to spot, and the reason is because they stay close to the Scriptures. They don't simply claim to supersede the Scriptures like Jeff's did. Instead, they quote the Scriptures, and they twist them. They, they read the Scriptures, and then they give plausible-sounding but ultimately erroneous interpretations that lead unsuspecting Christians astray from the truth. Not everyone who says that they are speaking for Christ actually do so. So how do we spot them? How do we spot wolves and sheep's clothing? How do we spot blasphemous and deceptive teachers? Well, there's no universal manual that will somehow give us a cheat code for, for discovering all false teachers because they're ever sprouting up new. No, the way that you learn to recognize a counterfeit is by becoming well acquainted with the genuine. Let me give you an example. When I first got married, for the first several years of marriage, I worked at Bank of America. And uh, I worked there as a teller for a while, and then I was promoted to a personal banker. And in my time there, I spent a lot of time handling uh, dollar bills. And when I was first hired, I went through training, and they, they gave us sort of a list of criteria for what to look for in terms of counterfeit bills. So there are people out there that print fake money. They're essentially robbing the government. They're robbing the nation by printing their fake money, and then they disperse it into the circulation of dollars, and we can't accept those uh, as a bank. And so we're learning, how do you spot these, these uh, uh, counterfeit bills? And I tell you, friends, by the end of my time there, I could spot the counterfeit bills very quickly. The moment my thumb touched the bill, I could tell this is a fake. And it's not because I had this long list of criteria in the back of my head that I was sort of filtering through, okay, is this, is this false, is this true? No, it's because I had spent so much time handling genuine money, counting it down on the counter like that, that as soon as I touched the counterfeit, I didn't need to know what exactly what was counterfeit about it in order to know this is not the real deal. This isn't the real thing. That's the best way 
for us to avoid false teaching, for us to be so acquainted with the scriptures that when someone comes along and twists them, we don't even have to know exactly how they went wrong in order to know that what they are saying does not accord with sound doctrine. The way is for us to become acquainted, well acquainted with the scriptures and experience handling the genuine. So friends, give yourselves to the study of God's word so that you can behold the glory of Christ there, so that you can be transformed by what you see there, and so that you can uh, stand against the deceptions of false teachers. And friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe a friend brought you here, maybe you're just curious to see what Christians do or, or think or believe, I'm glad that you're here. I really am glad that you're here, and I, I think I can speak on behalf of Christ when I invite you this morning to behold him by faith. Behold the glory of Christ by faith. Why? Because he meets your greatest need. Friends, the the bad news for you is that you, apart from him, are hopelessly opposed to the God of the universe that you were made for on account of your sin. You may object and say, no, 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 in the the light of day, you may say, no, I'm not not that bad of a guy. I'm I'm open-minded to what... Uh, to who God is, but you know that in the quiet hours of the night when you are um, naked and exposed, so to speak, before God, you know that you actually do deserve wrath and condemnation because of your sin. You know that your best days could never make up for what you owe to Him because your best days are tainted with sin and you lack the holiness you need. And further, friends, If that wasn't bad enough, you live in a world that has been invaded by sin and corruption, and you are therefore broken beyond all human repair. This sounds like bad news. I thought Christians were supposed to be joyful in the Lord. Sounds like this guy's wanting for us to despair. And in fact, I do want you to despair. I want you to despair of your self-sufficiency. I want you to despair of your best efforts to To justify yourself, I want you to despair of your best efforts and realize that you on your own are without hope because it's only when you come to that place that you see the glory of Christ for how glorious it is. It's only when you get to that place of despair that it's good news for you to hear, but God, being rich in mercy, has not left you without a way of deliverance because when the Son of God, this This God-man, Jesus Christ, that we've been reveling in for the past hour. When the Son of God assumed a human nature, He was making a way for you to return to God apart from your own works. He came to live a life of perfection, the life that you could never live. He came to live that life for you so that you don't have to. He came to die as a substitute, as a wrath-absorbing substitute, that death that you deserve to die, so that you don't have to. He was resurrected to blaze a trail out of the grave for you to follow so that death does not have to be the end for you. And He was ascended on high into the heavens in order to bring man to God once more. Friends, none of these things are yours outside of faith in Christ, but all of them are All of them are yours if you would behold His glory by faith. So that's what I invite you to. Behold the glory of Christ whose glory emanates from every page of this book. Behold the glory of Jesus, the true Passover lamb whose blood propitiates and diverts and satisfies the condemning wrath of a holy God. 
Behold the glory of Jesus who is one with the Father and the Spirit in essence and glory, one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Behold the glory of Jesus, the Word who was with God and was God and yet accommodated His infinite divine self for finite creatures like us by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Behold the glory of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who emptied himself, not by leaving his divine glory behind, but by taking on the form of a servant, such that he, the second person of the Trinity, in his human nature, lay bound by time and space in a manger, even while, simultaneously, he, same person in his divine nature, sustained the cosmos that he himself created. Does that sound mysterious? I hope so. Gloriously so. Behold the glory of Jesus who is the high priest who is able to sympathize with you within your weaknesses because he was tempted in every day as you are. And yet his sympathy is better because his priestly work can be accomplished because he was without sin, unlike us. Behold the glory of Jesus who takes your record of debt that stands against you with its legal demands, taunting you, condemning you. He takes that record of debt and he sets it to the side nailing it to the cross. Behold the glory of Jesus who takes your sin nature, your old self, upon himself, nailing it to the cross and burying it in the grave. Behold the glory of Jesus who brings you out of the grave with him in, uh, with his resurrection to walk in newness of life. Behold the glory of Jesus whose resurrection solidifies and announces that if you are in him by faith, your sins have been paid in full. Behold the glory of Jesus who will make all things new, who will wipe every tear from every eye, who will make all sad things come untrue, who will make death work in reverse, and who is taking your every single affliction and rendering it light and momentary in comparison to the weight of glory that he is preparing with it. No suffering is wasted for the Christian. Behold the glory of Jesus, in other words, which is the glory of the triune God. I want you to behold that glory by faith because the sight of that glory is able to save. Why? Because it's not merely the glory of a man, but is rather the timeless glory of the incomprehensible, unchanging, self-existent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-holy, all-just, all-gracious, all-loving, undiminished glory of the Holy Trinity. That glory is able to save you. And when you look at the crucified and risen Savior in this precious book, we are looking at that glory of that God, the same glory that Elijah saw, the same glory that Moses saw, the same glory that Peter and James and John saw. Oh, friends, won't you behold his glory by faith? Forgiveness of sins, freedom from corruption, inheritance to heaven is yours if you would cling by faith alone to this glorious God-man. Let's pray. Our Holy Trinity, we ask that you use your word proclaimed this morning to build up your church. Use it to do what no mere man and no mere sermon can do. Use your word to warm the affections of your saints for you. And use it to call the lost sheep into the fold. Lord Jesus, as our good shepherd, call out to your own. And may those who are lost and wondering respond to your voice in faith. Be glorified among us now, we pray, pleading the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.